Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I'm calling in from the snowy, frigid slopes of Park City, Utah, where this year's Sundance Film Festival is currently unfolding. Throughout the festival, I will be rallying the best critics in town to debate and discuss each day's new premieres. So follow along on the Film Comment podcast and the Film Comment letter for roundtable discussions, interviews, dispatches, and more. It's day three at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival, which means it's also day three of Film Comment podcasting at the Sundance Film Festival. I feel like I've already been here like 10 days. But today mm-hmm. I have a very exciting duo of guests with me, friends I'm so happy to see after after a long time and to bring together two of the smartest uh, people I know in the film world. Miriam, you go first. Introduce yourself. I don't know about that <laughs> intro, but thank you. Um, I'm Miriam Bale. I'm the artistic director of Indie Memphis and a sometimes critic, but mostly retired critic. Great to see you again, Miriam. I think I haven't seen you since Cannes and you were on the podcast then. Yes, it was so much fun. Yeah. We did a great himbo episode that people enjoyed. (laughs) Maybe let's see. Oh, I do remember it very dearly because you actually gave me the one definition of a himbo that I think back to often. So I'm maybe, so glad I could be useful, Abby. So maybe not today, but Miriam, you're going to come back in a couple of days on the podcast. And in that time, oh. I would I ask you to collect some himbos in your mind as you watch Sundance movies. <laughs> <laughs> we must shout out some Sundance himbos as well. Of course. Okay. And we have Abby, who was here just a couple episodes ago. She's back here. And it's a pleasure to be back, as always. Yes. I'm Abby. I am the Director of Artist Programs at the International Documentary Association and also a sometimes film critic and freelance film programmer. Thrilled to be back. Yay. Okay. So we've seen quite a few movies by now. It's day mm-hmm. three. But to me, there was one movie that has just kind of stood above the rest. And I think... Uh, Miriam, you were just agreeing with me before we started recording that movie's Earth Mama by Savannah Leaf. We did talk about it a little bit on the podcast yesterday, but I frankly feel this is a movie that I want to get like a lot of people's takes on because it's it's so rich. Uh, do you want to start us off? I'm happy to. It was the first movie I saw. I've been here. I've, I've seen two days of films and it was an amazing first film to see here. One thing, I I don't know what, I haven't listened to what you've discussed about it yet, but one thing that I'd love to talk about specifically is that it is, it captures elements of the Bay Area Mm. that I haven't often seen in films. Mm. And um, I'm from the Bay Area and I was born in Marin County, which is a strange place, and then spent weekends in the East Bay where the film takes place. And I feel like there's a bridge that connects Marin and the East Bay and this film so perfectly captures the Bay Area of what is what's what's obviously diverse about it what is you know what is can be tough about um living without a lot of money in the Bay Area and then also the beauty the natural beauty Mm. is such a part of it and 
I was so moved by this film. Gosh, I have so much to say about this film, actually, especially to you two, because before seeing this film, I had just been thinking about class, mm. especially class in documentary. And I feel like this film really captures what it's like to be working class, what it's like to be, and like nuances of, um, I think you've probably already talked about the issue. It's about a woman yeah. who is, has lost her children to the system in quotes. Um, I, I think because of drug use and because of uh, cycles of trauma and is pregnant with her third child and is deciding whether or not to give this child up for adoption. And at this point in my life, like it is such an important issue. I know people who are on both sides of that, who mm. are interested in adoption, who are interested, you know, who have, who, who have, whose mothers have had to give them up and and it's so important and I feel was handled so well what do you guys think yeah I, I just wanted to mention like we didn't dig into the Bay Area aspect as much yesterday okay. I'm glad you brought that up because um I've only only been to the Bay Area you know I've visited I'm, I'm not from you know the west coast or anything but the more I think about it it's actually unlike any depiction I've seen of the Bay Area. It doesn't have the visual tropes. Of um, San Francisco, which is what you exactly. usually see. Exactly. You yeah. usually see a kind of urban, uh, the urban landscape of San Francisco as it appears on film can feel quite familiar. Yes. And um, there is a kind of micro-focus to this film. It You know, so you're not necessarily, it's not giving you those kinds of overly familiar macro images of the city. It's really giving you images of the pockets of the city navigated by the people at the center of the movie. Mm. And there's something very intimate. But then there's also this natural beauty that you were talking about, mm -hmm. the forests, uh, the ocean. But they all feel personal, like they are the protagonist's pocket. Yeah. of this place. No, I would I, I agree, but I would I think it's actually inverse. I think mm. that the that the bear that we usually see is very um it's 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 very micro. It's very mm. like these tourist spots in San Francisco, but the actual Bay Area is suburban and nature and beautiful and you know like and I think that this really captures the Bay Area, the people that live there, is is more familiar, honestly. Yeah. And on the way that nature is unfolded in the film, to me, it's really beautiful because sometimes the more mystical or um, kind of um, supernatural, not treated in a supernatural way in this film, but there spiritual, are... Spiritual, maybe. Yeah, spiritual, yeah. perhaps. But there are sequences in which um, like, we get transported from kind of these maybe small cramped interior spaces into something that is more outdoors, but it's not treated as a hallucination or anything like that. I mean, this is a very small part of the film to be super, you know, careful about how I'm describing this. Small in visuals, but not yes. in theme. I mean, that's yes, the title, the title. Right? Earth exactly. Mama, you know? Yeah, and to me, the way that it moves from interiors to exteriors, from interiority to exteriority, how everything is expressed um, is fantastic. Also, the um, actors, apparently a first-timer, Tia Nonone. I'm not actually quite sure how to say her last name, but... Um, so good. She's and I, I believe she's a musician, and this yeah. is her first time acting. And a doula? 
Is that correct? Sorry? Like somehow, I think she's also a doula. I think I read that. that she, she did has... say that she shot the movie when she was, she was a new mother when she, like she'd just oh, given birth recently when okay. she shot the movie. Okay. So she, and she's like nine months pregnant in the movie. And so she oh, was kind literally, of. literally it wasn't. Oh, I didn't realize that. That makes no, no, sense. No, 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 no. She wasn't. I don't think she was actually pregnant in the movie. Okay. But that. How she described it in the Q&A was that she was a new mother when she shot it. So I I'm, see. I'm, I had to miss the Q&A. Uh, okay. I'm imagining that mm. um, that she meant that she had given birth recently enough that it was yeah. still, she yeah. was still in that space. Yeah. I'd also, um, just in terms of like how perhaps autobiographical the film is, oh. there are like documentary-esque sequences in the film when it comes to... So one of the repeating types of scenes that we see in the film are these mandatory classes through the family court system that different people in the film, but also um, in, like is forced to... Gia. In order to, yeah, Gia yeah. forced to attend in order to... Um, Perhaps if she wants to not give the new child up for adoption, that she has to fulfill. And there's a couple of sequences in particular where I'm actually not sure if everybody in the film is non-professional or first timer. But there are these kind of fourth wall breaking sequences that are incredibly moving. One actually opens the film. It's not revealed until halfway through the context of it. Yeah. And one of those... uh uh, individuals we see in those sequences that Abby you're referring there's a shot that just kind of broke me when Gia leaves the center after a class and she's walking away and the camera stays with one of the women we've seen speaking in front of the classroom and she's just standing outside and she breaks into tears we don't know this woman's name we've only seen her little testimonies she's not a character in the film but the camera doesn't go with Gia it stays with this woman and just we just watch her yeah. break down into tears and they've just had a very vulnerable session and that just got to me you know this kind of attention to emotional detail and this way in which even though it is Gia's story it's so much more uh, it's so much like a broader story that's it the director's making the point that this person is not alone they, this is a systemic issue. There are so many women like her. Right. And what's so interesting is, and so elegant, is you're hearing these stories and these testimonies that you're talking about are about cycles of trauma and about how these women who are dealing with this with their own children have dealt with their own mothers mm -hmm. and with issues. And it's so real. And it's what's so interesting is that Gia herself, the main character, never tells her own story. You never hear her own mother's story. But yet from the context, you're un you understand that it's almost, I feel like it's such a strong choice to not have her tell her own sort of sub story. I was, and yeah. I was actually thinking about like how the film deals with trauma. Yeah. And the ubiquitous ubiquity of the trauma plot and how it's built upon like whether or not the main characters are maybe virtuous enough or they change enough. And I feel like so much of this a film confessional or reckoning exactly, moment. Yeah, yeah. And so much about this film is in deliberately resisting that type of redemption, like trauma, yeah, yeah reliant narrative. You know, Abby, we talked about the longest goodbye on the first episode, and we were kind of talking about how very different kind of movie. I don't know if you saw it. It's, uh, of <laughs> we talked about it in great detail, but it's it's a documentary about um, 
like psychological resi resilience uh, during like long space journeys, like how astronauts build that and the challenges. And it takes as its like not protagonist, but like it focuses on two astronauts who are both women. But the movie never quite like acknowledges the fact that it is making this choice and it explores the framework of family through you know these two women like what does it mean to be far away from your child when you're in space what does it mean like what does family support look like and it doesn't properly acknowledge the fact that you know these are white women you know who are come who come from like certain kinds of traditional backgrounds and i was just thinking this is a completely different movie but without making any points how gently it challenges these normalizations that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, there's a, and one more scene where a friend of hers who's been helping her, uh, you know, in the movie and always calls her mama. Yeah. You know, she lashes out at that friend in a moment of kind of resentment. And she says, stop calling me that. I'm not your mama. And that, I'm not your moms. Yeah, I'm not your moms. Sorry, that's yeah, exactly yeah. what she said. And uh, that moment really struck me because the movie is both exploring these ideas of m uh, motherhood as an ideal, motherhood as uh, close to nature and something that can feel, you know, more than physical, more than sort of like what you can, like ineffable. But at the same time, it's like subtly, gently also challenging this expectation that every every woman be like, approached with an expectation of maternity and that we reinforce yeah. in our like simplest you know words yeah i mean and it's 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 such a specific story but it gets all as, as you said earlier the systemic things i mean not to go on a soapbox but it's like i mean at, at the age that i'm at now i'm current you know like you realize that i i've like I said, I've I've experienced things from it doesn't demonize the people who are adopting as well, you know, mm -hmm. and I feel like that that's really strong. Um, but it says that they waited until they were a better situation financially. And that's because this country is so fucked that am I allowed to say that on this podcast? Yes, we are not. <laughs> we are not NBC, not NBC. Miriam. You can curse okay. all you want. <laughs> but like, it's like, because like, you know, it's, it's like people it should naturally be having kids when it's easier when they're in their 20s, but they don't because, because of, uh, they don't have free health care and they don't have free, uh, free college and free daycare. And mm -hmm. if they have those things, then, these kind of complicated issues from both ends would not be an yeah. issue. Yeah. Um, on that, just in terms of how the issues in the system is depicted, yeah. the film is also very complicated because there are multiple caseworkers that Gia comes into contact with. There's many different dynamics that are occurring between them. I'm thinking of like the conversation between... Um, the woman that's working on kind of the adoption and all of that with her sitting by her hospital bed. Um, and to me, there's like a lot of like patronizing, not patronizing, who's actually helping. What are you also to me, since I think about this a lot as the voice of in an institution these days, what does it mean to um, dedicate your life to one type of work, but then be a voice for something that is working against the people that you are trying to work for, ostensibly. Yeah. 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 
And I think that, like you said, there are different types of caseworkers and there's one in who's portrayed in a more negative light mm -hmm. or maybe some she's more bureaucratic, kind of just, you know, a part of the system. And then, yeah, but this woman, she, the performers, performer is, again, so great and she just exudes warmth. But just like Gia, you can't, you kind of are in that place of uncertainty of whether she's a soldier for the system or a true I mean, aid. In the, the, the word that's used in the film itself is like whether or not she can be trusted. Right. Yeah. I also want to talk a little bit about the cinematography. You may have already talked about it, but Jody Lee Leips, um, uh, who is such a strong cinematographer. And for me, again, this is very Bay Area, very California. I recently watched... Um, uh, the Charles Burnett movie, My Brother's Wedding, um, was re-watching that and was like so struck about how interesting it was, the contrast, the sort of high contrast between these like dark rooms and the bright California light. Mm. And this movie also captured that so beautifully. I mean, it's it's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Well, it also does, speaking of things that it resists, it resists because most most films have a slow zoom in. Mm. And this one actually really uses the slow zoom out in yeah. key moments. And then also, especially when the camera stays, it has this like very old school, almost at this point, I would say documentary, but documentaries are also cut frenetically these days. Um, like it will hang on moment. Patient. There's yeah. like a patience to the. Yeah. yeah. So, so then movements become extraordinarily controlled, but not like dolling for dolling's sake, for yeah. instance. Um, but really moving to reveal different dynamics between characters on screen yeah. and more of um, the scene setting around all of it. It was just extraordinarily um, elegant to mirror yeah. a word that Miriam's used already. Something I, I mentioned yesterday was just that how beautiful everyone in the film looks not just because they are, I mean, they're attractive people, but every single person in the film looks luminous and not in a false or over-fetishized or stylized way. I think there's something so loving about the cinematography, the way everyone's lit, and it yeah. just extends the film's own gesture of dignity. And, you know, I, I just felt that I couldn't help but admiring every single person. And these are, some of them are people living in like pretty destitute circumstances, but they all like gleam on screen. And I was just very taken by that. Yeah, it's, I think it's a really special film. I agree. You know, there's, there. my first reaction to the film was, I was like, I, I really, really like it. I almost mm. love it. But there are a couple moments that are a bit, for me, I thought maybe a little bit on the nose. And then I thought about it later and I was like, you know what though, but this is a topic that is so rarely covered in this way that it needed those moments. It needed that kind of like, and so I was like, you know what? I changed my mind. I love it. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Well, I will say I do think her original choice of profession is a little on the nose for me mm. um, because she works in a 
uh, Gia works in a portrait studio, and we first are introduced to this job when she is setting up um, a newborn baby for a you know baby family photo shoot. Um, it does lend itself to some. Eyes. <laughs> it does lend itself to some fantastic tableau, though. So I'm, I did love that. Yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm not gonna begrudge the movie that. Me either. Um, but anyway, uh, we should move on because we, this, we like, could talk this time, whole time about we're this just film. Indulging in this film, well, but that's I. That's good. I know, I know. But there is another very buzzy title here that has picked up a lot of raves, but. I think we're all mixed on it, Past Lives, which Abby and Miriam, you just saw. So Abby, you want to tell us about this movie? Yeah, so Past Lives, well, just a little note ahead of time. There are six A24 titles at Sundance this year, and Earth Mama is one of them, and Past Lives is another. Oh, um, and so I didn't just realize a little Past Lives bit, was yeah, A24. So to me, it's actually also interesting to consider um, um and many of them are by first-time directors, so this really seems to be A24 kind of putting a stake in the ground for um, spotlighting um, BIPOC women of color directors. But there is a part of me that is also more cynical and wonders how much Sundance is now just, um, you know, a part of A24's marketing plans. Um, but I say that because I'm more cynical about the second film. So Past Lives is the first feature by... Um, theater director Celine Song and um, it takes its title from a actually a rather common myth across many East Asian cultures um, but the context is Korea in this case um, that um, uh, there's a special word that describes um, this idea that romantic partners um, if you're particularly compatible in whatever way it can be traced to the fact that you have been compatible or have had encounters before in past lives. I would also describe this film as kind of a, I don't know, before sunset-esque like. encounter, but it, true to its name, it takes a while to get there. So it takes place across um, kind of three two-day periods, um, each 12 years apart of um, um, the two main characters, one when they are 12 years old, then 24, and then 36 at different stages of their lives. It also takes as its context um, kind of the um, the great exodus of many um, uh, upper middle class um, families in Korea immigrating to the U.S. in pursuit of better opportunities. It's handled a little facetiously in this film, <laughs> but um, it is following um, something that's quite well established. But the entire last half of the film is on the third part, um, year three, when um, the two um, young first loves, as they both acknowledge to each other, um, encounter each other again yeah. in New York. And so just and to fill in just some more details, the two main characters, uh, you, you know, they're classmates when they're children in mm. Korea and they have this really special connection. And then uh, one of them moves away. Her family moves away to the United States. And to they, Canada. Uh, to, sorry. Oh, to Canada. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me say that again. No, oh, to Canada first and then she moves right, to New York. Right. That's why she needs the green card. Actually. Okay. Yes. Yes. So what's yes. the protagonist's name? I'm completely... Um, her name is Nora. I mean, her, Nora, her she chooses American name Nora. is, is then, Mo Nora Moon. And the um, guy is Hae Sung. I'm forgetting what her. It was all. 
So just to fill in some details, mm-hmm. the two characters, uh, Nora and Heisung, Nora is the name she adopts later when she immigrates to Canada, are these kind of childhood loves classmates in Korea. Uh, they have a really special connection. And then uh, Nora's family immigrates to Canada with her and they as one would expect to drift apart. And they sort of randomly reconnect years later via social media and then start talking and develop a connection. And then he comes to visit her in New York where she's living and, you know, kind of trying to work as a writer and, you know, is married to a an American man. Yeah. And so those are the three parts of the movie. So yeah. it's, yeah, um, I described it, I just saw it today and I described it as flawless and I didn't care for it. <laughs> Okay, explain why flawless. It's, I could tell the audience was reacting to it. It's, you know, the directing, it's like, it, it's it's hard to fault it from um, um, uh, the acting and the directing. It's fine. Mm. It, it was, there's, there's, there's nothing. It's very competent. A, it's very competent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, both of you, it's like a complicated situation I'm in as, a critic and also as a programmer. Yeah. As a programmer, it's fine. It's perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people would like it. Personally, I found it um, uh, um, a, a, a bit flat. Like, I, I, I found it... And it's also hard for me at this point in the festival. I saw another film, which is Embargoed, and I can't talk about now, which was really surprised me, and it was a very traditional romantic comedy, and it was so good at the chemistry and these two characters, and this film is not you can, that. You can mention the title. I it's think Rylane, okay, and which I was really surprised by, and I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit more after the embargo, Yeah, and um, I'll talk about what was strong about it, but this film is like a very strong woman character and then these sort of penciled in the Korean dude and the white American dude and there's not really much beyond that and it was like very kind of it was very it was very easy to map out as soon as the film started exactly Mm -hmm. where it was going and I found it um I found it just like beyond this idea of reconnecting. I mean, there were a few moments with the Skype um, when they were reconnecting. I will say the one thing I really liked about the film is instead of saying 12 years later, it says 12 years past. Mm-hmm. That's what I liked about it. That's all I'll say. <laughs> a little, say a little more. detail. Yeah. I, the, you know what you're saying, like this flatness? You know, I think... On the one hand, it is a film with a lot of little details like that, just even the use of the word past, um, kind of subtle little details. And at the same time, it is, to me, at, at its core, a very basic diaspora film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the mm-hmm. basic diaspora film template is, I belong neither here nor there. Like, my language mm-hmm. separ- is this mm-hmm. kind of chasm. And will I ever relate to this life that I have now? Or or is mm-hmm. the it, does my language open up a world that is truer to me? I don't know. And that's what this film boils down to. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. these, these characters are kind of, like, designed, like, you know, just... Uh, pawns to drive home what I think is a pretty trite idea. I'm not sure I have much more to add, honestly. But I would say um, there's a couple of things that um, when it comes to the specificity of detail that I think the film overly leans on. 
for notes of authenticity. Like for instance, um, the the story on the the concept that the title comes from, like I'm saying, like actually is a rather pan East Asian belief. Many of the things that are mentioned are actually quite unspecific, even though they get very specific names. Like what? Film. Um, like, um, for instance, like the, the food and the spiciness of it and, um, like, um, talk, uh, there's one particular scene after, um, Nora first sees Sung again in the last section of the film and she comes back and she's describing the encounter and her thoughts to her now husband, um, and um, she's describing what makes Sung feel particularly Korean to her. And that did get, um, Miriam, I think we were in the same audience, that got a lot of laughs out of the audience. And where I was sitting, there were a lot of young Asian American couples that were sitting around me. And I could see that they were like kind of, you know, laughing along, like leaning on each other's shoulders and um, all of that. Um, so I agree, I could see the audience reacting, but I also couldn't necessarily tell if it was like, it's one of those situations where I'm not sure who's laughing at whom in this situation because of that. Um, it's never actually quite brought up, but some of the things that Nora says are actually rather kind of I mean, another trope for the diaspora film is the self-loathing Asian. Um, and while many other things are actually examined because Nora is a quite um, gifted speaker and she is shown displaying like feats of introspection during the film. But this part is very strangely to me absent. And that um, is quite uncomfortable for mm. me to think about as well. Well, that's past lives. Abby, I know there's one film that we both saw and mm -hmm. really loved, and maybe we'll talk about the, that a little bit. And Miriam, a, a, a recommendation for you, because I think you'd, you'd like it too. It's Against the Tide by Sarvnik Kaur, uh, who's an Indian filmmaker, Indian documentary filmmaker. And this is uh, just such a... Sorry, the, the premise itself is so rich, and it, and it does so much with it. It follows two fishermen from a traditional indigenous fisher, fishing caste in Mumbai, the Kohli caste. And they are best friends, um, but they've kind of grown apart, uh, as in taken like diverging paths when it comes to their like mode of livelihood. So Rakesh lives in pretty modest circumstances with his aunt, with his wife. Uh, they have two children. One of the children is really young and is having a lot of heart problems. And he practices fishing according to traditional methods passed down from his ancestors. He uses the boat that you know, passed down uh, from his father. Uh, these ancestral methods, you know, are very much about fishing as much as you need in order to survive and to have a livelihood. So, you know, it's not kind of this industrial scale practice. It's using very low tech methods. Um, it's also, you know, just there's a kind of spirituality to it and the film opens and ends with these um, rituals of birth. Uh, the film opens with Rakesh's son being born and ends with Ganesh's son being born. And uh, they're both like sort of baptized according to Kohli uh, customs and, mm. and, you know, and these like fishing songs that encourage Kohli fishermen to be fearless. And Ganesh, meanwhile, went abroad to study 
has a very kind of cosmopolitan middle class life in Bombay and he does this kind of large scale industrial fishing where he takes these big boats and he uses led lights which are controversial and uh, well this is actually the plot of the film right. is will he or will he right. not be he economically the, forced to use LED lights. He does light. at the yeah. end. I guess yes. I'm giving a bit of a spoiler, but he's yeah. pro these kinds of methods. Um, and the surprising thing is that, despite the different methods and circumstances, they're both flailing because the ocean is decimated, because there aren't enough fish, because the ocean is polluted. There's all uh, boats from you know various countries. Once you go past like the Indian territory, the laws are different. So they're both completely flailing, and we kind of see their lives like cut between their lives and how they're like making business and fishing decisions. And then their lives kind of intersect in these late night conversations the two of them have, which often devolve into debates about modern versus ancestral fishing methods. And so it's just this like extremely detailed and rich portrait of this subculture uh, that a lot of people may not know about, but that has a long history and also, you know, a very contemporary, it's a very contemporary, like topical subject that's frankly, I mean, I've seen a couple other movies about fishing mm -hmm. uh, practices already at Sundance. And, you mm -hmm. know, it's it's a big theme in the midst of like the climate change crisis. Yes. That's all I'll say for now, Abby. I yes. You texted me when you saw it and you were like, I love this movie. So, yes. Yeah. Um, well, a bit of a disclaimer. So the producer of the film, Koval Bhatia, is a current fellow with IDA getting really fellows so I had tickets for the public premiere because I was there to support Koval. I had not seen any work samples from the project and I was blown away. Um, so again the setup is very organic. It's clear um, that the team which is very small shot a lot with um, um, the late night conversations itself like engender a lot of philosophical nuance um, but it's like a marvelous film for many ways it is old school verite there is the only voiceover actually comes um with this birth ritual blessing that both of the main um protagonist sons undergo um and the music is amazing and comes in at just the right moment um the way that the boats are filmed are a, an incredible mix between the process documentary and just like kind of like Leviathan-esque feats of camera mastery. Right, it's, but which feel yeah. very low-key and DIY. Like, yeah. they, they're stunning ocean sequences, but they don't feel kind of high-tech and overly smooth. Uh, you know, and yeah. I, I, like I mean, they're on, like, beauty. exactly. Like, you know, a lot of the scenes are, it's clear that the camera crew, like, the camera man, actually, like, singular, um, is on, like, another boat right by them. But it's it's just really incredible when we finally see the LED lights. You can really see, based off of the underwater cameras, the difference in the fishing. I mean, it's everything like comes like it that they don't explain until really far into the film just what the environmental implications are of using led fishing there's multiple scenes with the harbor official who is seeking bribes um and um i would say the really interesting thing too about the film and 
it being a two-hander, it's very difficult for two-handers in documentary spaces to not be pitting one against the other for it not to be good and to be bad. Ganesh, who is the one who does eventually try LED fishing, is shown being morally upstanding in other different ways and for fighting. He's a great friend. I yeah. Mean, yeah. And he's also a part of some sort of like political like harbor collective of Kohli fishermen that are advocating. There's like protests. There's a lot of evidence of different things that are happening. Um, I would say also the editing is really, really continuous quite flawless you don't get that feeling of cutting back and forth yeah. like it you know they kind of merge she finds Sarvnik finds these moments where they interact and those become the nodes through which yeah. we enter you know one story it's and the also other funny so the editing team on the film are the two directors and editors of honeyland another oh. rarite um like also has real moments of humor film but for me the humor is a little bit contrived in Honeyland um, it's another kind of two-hander but they're really pitted against each other um, the two well like kind of the two groups of people in uh -huh. Honeyland um, and this one actually it, it's those parts that felt um, a bit artificial to me are dialed back a a lot more in yeah. this film to the point it feels very naturalistic and I will say about the pitting against I, I agree with you like you never really feel like they're being pitted against each other partly because they have such a genuine friendship but also you know one thing I really dislike sometimes about these kinds of verite documentaries about subaltern practices is that they they it often feels like the filmmaker whether uh, whether vocally or not is imposing theory on these people like mm -hmm. is imposing a theoretical framework on them and in this documentary they are they theorize themselves they theorize their own practices you know all of the analysis comes from the characters themselves in their conversations i mean the conversations between Rakesh and his aunt, who, even though they are struggling to rub together two pennies, she's like, control your greed. You know, you don't you don't need to make more than you need. You know, and these kinds of con uh, these kinds of ideas, economic ideas, political ideas that come from very indigenous and lived experiences. Uh, and when the two argue, they, it's very funny because they're very rude and they have this yeah. like boyish kind of energy, but they are hitting, I mean, they, they're really doing like some really yeah. like, trade talk, you know? What I would add to this too is oftentimes in these quote-unquote observational documentaries, many of those scenes are, to me, quite obviously staged. Like they are protagonists that whose lives don't actually intersect and they're brought together in a way to get storylines to intersect and to specifically discuss something and to make it look observational as opposed to something that's in an in interview form. But I can't speculate as to how staged things are or not. I mean, it could be like some meetings were encouraged to happen because this documentary was being filmed. And the bulk of the filming, to my understanding, is done over a one-year period, um, though the film took much longer to make. Um, but there are like... I'm thinking of the last argument that they have. Um, it's like, it's another film that just like with Earth Mama is not afraid to stay in uncomfortable moments. It doesn't cut away immediately, which is a tactic that documentaries often take these days, um, but it stays and it sees it through.
Well, Against the Tide is definitely a Sundance doc recommendation from Abby and me. Uh, there are lots of documentaries here. And I know, Miriam, you've seen two that have been talked about a lot that yeah. I'm eager to see. Uh, there's a Little Richard documentary and a Nikki Giovanni documentary. So yeah. tell us what you thought. Well, first of all, I'll say that the first four films that I saw um, at Sundance were by black women directors. Um, one co-directed uh, also with a black man. And that's unusual, mm-hmm. I feel, in my experience here. Um, so that was a wonderful introduction to the festival. Um, I do feel like one of those films was introduced by um, a black man. And I thought, oh, wow, does he work at Sundance? And then I realized he didn't. He worked at Searchlight. <laughs> so there's a little bit of catch up to do um, with behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. um, but I was impressed by these films that I saw. And um, and two of the films that I saw were um, uh, Going to Mars, the mm-hmm. Nikki Giovanni Project, which is a wonderful title, um, and um, the Little Richard, I Am Everything. And they're an interesting comparison because I feel like the Nikki Giovanni film was, was, I completely enjoyed it. But the problem with a film about someone as brilliant as Nikki Giovanni, who is a, an American poet, a black woman um, uh, who is just is just one of the most brilliant poets and thinkers in uh, uh, of all time. Um, and so her readings of her own poetry are so strong. And really, like, the thesis is kind of just about blackness not opposed to whiteness and um, about black women. And the title comes from um, her idea of the strength of black women and how that black women should go to Mars, that they could do anything Mm. and that they are the strongest and most amazing people in earth. And it's, it's a wonderful experience to spend this time with Nikki Giovanni. Um, I think that does the filmmaking do the images and the sequences match her brilliance? It's hard to do that. Mm. So I think not always did they do that, but where it, where both the filmmaking and Nikki Giovanni really match are with her humor, which I didn't really know as much. Like she's so funny and the film is funny. There's this amazing sequence where she talks about, um, she thinks that like um, the penis is obsolete because it's been misused and the filmmaking does these wonderful cutaways to the audience. And the filmmaking, the film is really bold in um, just, uh, focusing on scenes where basically Nikki Giovanni says that stupid question to an audience members, to the filmmakers. Mm. And oh, it's love it. Yeah. Okay. No. And, and, and so you want to watch people being schooled by Nikki Giovanni. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Yeah. It's a wonderful experience, but it's, it's just, um, it's a film in the end. It's, it's um you know it's it's the Nikki Giovanni project it's this, it's this, it's hard to find it's hard to quite meet her and where it ends up focusing is about 
memory and about aging and about black women. And it gets there. While the Little Richard documentary, Little Richard, I Am Everything by Lisa Cortez, um, is much, much simpler and has a very simple thesis. And it just does an impeccable job of focusing on that. The thesis is that the king of rock and roll is not Elvis, that the, 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 the founder of rock and roll is actually a black queer man. And it does a great job of just focusing on that and covering it. And um, um, I do have one issue with it. There's this one, I mean, I, mean, I shouldn't, I, like his whole, his whole, his arc is, you know, very complicated. And we really saw this when he died about his own homosexuality or his own queerness. I think bisexuality, you know, he had a strong relationship to the church and he really kind of like disowned his own homosexuality at a point. But I don't think that the film connects. I, I just kind of understood from the background that this must have been during the AIDS crisis. And this must have been like during like pre-Reagan or just around that and that that must have had something to do with it and I would have liked to see a little bit more context but it did a great job of of covering it but they're very different like I think one was trying to cover a very specific idea and did it very well and the other was trying to be take you know be a more complicated film about a more complicated subject and 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 that's hard yeah Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm curious about these. There's a lot of artist documentaries at Sundance. Is there that always right? are biographical documentaries? I will say, though, about Lisa Cortez and Joe Brewster and Michelle Stevenson is that they are all Sundance veterans and just kind of um, like very established black directors in the field. And it's always thrilling to see their new projects for me. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great note to end on, <laughs> an affirming note uh, to end this episode on. Thank you both so much for joining. Uh, I feel so bad asking, you know, all of you to join, like usually late in the day after a long day of viewing, and then you come and give great insights. Are you kidding? It's such a pleasure <laughs> to see you both and to talk about well, these movies me, with you. You know, the curation of who are the guests are the best part I of know. this podcast. <laughs> it's a thrill. Uh, well... I will let you both go enjoy your uh, Saturday night at Sundance and see you both again in a couple days. We'll touch base and talk about some more movies. I'm so excited for you both to see Fair Play and then talk about it with me. It must happen. I'm giving you an assignment for the yes. next episode. It's All already right. on my <laughs> schedule for tomorrow morning. Okay. Accepted. All right. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 